0: I wanted to be the Bill Nye, the science guy of mountain biking, where I'm making it accessible to everyone. And what I found is I was getting messages Hey, Seth, I'm getting my first mountain bike thanks to you. Or, Hey, what mountain bike do you think I should get? And so we were actually creating mountain bikers. Not only creating mountain bikers, but also just making people view mountain biking in a more positive light and demystifying what it is. Some people didn't even know what it was. It's like, wait. Normal people go off of jumps. I thought only professionals go off of jumps. Like there were all these things that even if nobody was asking the question, I knew that some of them were just kind of like going along and nobody ever explicitly explained what those things were. It's showtime, everybody. Showtime. You've been living in a dream world, Neo. This is the world as it exists today. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Listen, we're talking about practice.
1: Repeat on the dude's run. Donnie, you're out of your element. I see. You think this has nothing to do with you? Don't ever trash talk Black Jesus.
0: This is the Adventure Stash with Payson McCalvin.
1: Hello everyone, welcome back to the show. Fun conversation today with Seth Alvo, the man behind one of the largest media content creation outlets in the mountain bike industry. Uh, No, he's not the editor behind a famous magazine or popular website. Um, He's a content creator. He is a YouTuber and he has built a massive YouTube channel uh, that I don't know if it's technically the largest. It's certainly got to be one of the largest. Uh, And his numbers easily outpace many of the standardized, quote-unquote standardized uh, media sources. And the real differentiator for Seth is he identified this massive population of participants within mountain biking who were being forgotten by the industry and, frankly, kind of folks in my position too, professional athletes, others creating content And those would be the beginners, the folks just getting into the sport. Seth realized that as a whole, collectively, the industry, we sort of have a very uh, sophisticated and like highbrow and sometimes exclusive way of talking about mountain biking. You know, a lot of the, the tech articles out there are just kind of default for advanced readers a lot of the shreddits out there that athletes put out are obviously just insane riding, but the sort of riding that folks just getting into the sport certainly would be intimidated by. And probably many of them could never envision themselves riding that way. And Seth realized that that was a huge gap and he decided to try to fill it. And boy, has he ever, it's really, really impressive. It was awesome to catch up with Seth. Big fan of what he does. Even if you are an advanced rider, I strongly recommend you go check out his YouTube channel, formerly Seth's bike hacks. Now berm peak. Even as an advanced rider, I get a huge kick out of a lot of the videos that he puts out. Speaking of YouTube, today's episode is brought to you by the Lifetime Grand Prix and their all-new YouTube series, Call of a Lifetime. This is a six-part series chronicling last year's Lifetime Grand Prix, all of the on-bike drama and plenty of off-bike drama. This six-part series that's each episode is about 30 minutes long, um, has serious drive to survive vibes. I was as surprised as anyone when I queued it up the other day, when they all went live, all six episodes went live at once. Um, And there was all kinds of stuff in there that I wasn't aware of, things that I learned about my peers, uh, all kinds of little bits of action on the bike, off the bike. It's really entertaining. Highly recommend you all go check it out. You can go to Lifetime Grand Prix on YouTube to binge all six episodes right now. Uh speaking of the Lifetime Grand Prix, if you are a non-pro racer interested in participating in some of these events whether it's the Leadville 100, Unbound, Schwamigan, Crusher and the Tusher or whatever or any of the events not in the Grand Prix, you can go to lifetime.life/athletic-events to check out Lifetime's huge portfolio of awesome events. Big thanks to them for supporting today's episode. And if you want to go check out uh 2023's Grand Prix roster, you can go to Lifetime Grand Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll catch you after the show. Okay, Seth, uh, we have met very briefly, I want to say in Sedona, but I might be misremembering. Um, It was either Sedona or Sea Otter. Yeah, we might have even met very briefly twice. But anyway, we have some mutual friends. Um, Big thanks to Aaron Luzzi for kind of giving me the prod to finally make this happen last week. Eric Porter is a mutual friend um, that said we don't have it's kind of a funny thing because we don't have a ton of crossover with me being more in the the racing world and yet you're sure. such a you're such a large you have such a large footprint in bike riding at this point in the industry um that's just high time we did this, and I have a lot of personal curiosities of course we have lots of Racers on the podcast, folks that would identify as like athlete first. um, And I certainly would hope that you consider yourself an athlete. But what would you call? Do you call yourself a YouTube creator? Do you call yourself a a creator? Yeah, I
0: call myself a creator. Okay. Um, So like, especially if you're dealing with companies, they'll use the word influencer. (laughs) And sometimes I'll let it slide. But usually I'm like, we kind of hate that word. Like when I wake up in the morning, I want to create videos. I want to um, make something entertaining for people. I'm not like, oh, who am I going to convince of something today? Who am I going to influence?
1: Yeah, and I mean, the reason I kind of want to clarify that and pause is because YouTuber can almost sound a little like reductionist, I feel like, because when you when you just look at the – to set the stage, when you look at your numbers of your YouTube channel, um, it's probably not a stretch to say you're one of the biggest media entities – in the bike industry at this point, right? Is that hyperbole? (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean,
0: um, that would be accurate. If you're talking about individuals, I'm definitely in the top. And then, you know, with other media entities like Red Bull, you know, they're obviously getting more. They have a huge organization. But yeah, as, as individuals, I'm up there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I guess kind of my point is like we're, we're in this interesting time where individuals uh, oftentimes have more eyes or ears on them than some of the traditional brands, you know, whether it's cycling news. I'm sure Pinkbike does crazy numbers, but point is uh, you're, you're up there. Um, so anyway, you're joining us from the southeast, I think. Can you describe for us uh, your compound, where, where you're based and what you've built there in the southeast?
0: So I'm in western North Carolina, right outside of Asheville. Uh, so we're we're deep in the mountains for the east coast. We're at elevation. It's 10 degrees cooler than everywhere else in, this, in the south. We have awesome summers and pretty mild winters. I rode yesterday. Um, can't complain. Um, and in western North Carolina, there's always been a big mountain biking scene, but it's really, really grown over the last few years, especially with... The internet and apps that show you where trails are. And up until recently, all we had was backcountry riding. And now we have all these bike parks and and facilities, and it's starting to become a major riding destination. I mean, people are moving here. Big names are moving here and setting up camp to the the southeast.
1: Yeah. 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 And I understand that's not where you're from originally. I think I saw you're from New York and then you've come there kind of via Florida. Uh, What prompted the move out there? So when I lived in New York, I
0: never really felt too at home there. I like to go outside. I like to do stuff. The the winters are brutal, Uh, probably not compared to some other places. But to me, it was just my life basically is on pause for five or six months when I'm Mm. in New York. Uh, So, when I got to the age where I could just kind of move anywhere, I moved to Florida. I had a lot of family down there. And so, I figured that would be an easy place to kind of um, get started, maybe invest in some property. I didn't really know where it would take me. But I knew that New York with the taxes and with the the weather wasn't going to be a place for me. Mm. Florida ended up not really being the place for me either, um, because I got more heavily into mountain biking. I'd always mountain biked, but growing up in New York, on Long Island, there wasn't really much mountain biking. So I did way more BMX. And then when I was in Florida, I did a lot of road biking and BMX and dirt jumping and things like that. And I would visit the skate park and that at that time so I guess 2013, 2014, mountain bikes had already started becoming something different. You know, we remember them in the 90s as road bikes with big fat tires. And then they kept moving more and more of the, in the direction of a big BMX. And around the time that I rediscovered mountain biking, dropper posts had... People were still saying dropper posts were a scam by the bike industry to make more us... <laughs> more. But I saw it as oh, now I can pedal and then drop the seat and bunny hop or hit a jump or something. Now this is more up my alley. And that's what really drove me to get back into mountain biking was now they have dropper posts. Now we're all on the same page. All the kids that grew up riding BMX are now big kids mountain biking, and they're trying to do the same things. And with the geometry and features the way they were, I could mountain bike the way I wanted to. And I just fell hard for it again. Yeah. And, uh, that's when it was really the, the YouTube channel was when I moved to North Carolina, but, uh, I was craving more terrain to ride and just more gravity in general as I got deeper into mountain biking again. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was so much different from from the mountain biking. I remember when I was a kid.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I want to talk about sort of the facility you've built there and how you you sort of have like the ultimate work from home set up in a lot of ways. It's been fun to follow some of the developments there. But I kind of want to paint a picture for folks of how you ended up where you are today. What did your life look like when you started to make videos? What prompted that? Were you... Uh did you have a full-time job elsewhere and it was just a side interest? Did you were you between jobs and you needed something to do? Was it like for a lot of creative people it's almost this compulsion like you're not happy unless you do unless it? creating. Exactly. Yeah. Um how did that come about for you? I was working from home. I've worked from home for a
0: very long time since my mid 20s. And, uh, and I was doing web development. I had my own company. I had a, a personal assistant and a couple developers. And, and I had a bunch of clients. And small pool clients that I really liked. I didn't really have any reason to rock the boat, actually. But I gotten efficient enough at doing what I was doing that I had some free time. And so I started making videos. And the exact reason why I started making videos isn't as important as why I continued. Because... It really comes down to the validation hmm. i didn't at the time YouTube wasn't as ubiquitous as it is now. It was popular everybody knew about YouTube, but nobody used the word subscribe nobody used the word nobody used the word youtuber. forget about that um that wasn't a thing and nobody took YouTube seriously. It wasn't a serious career it wasn't you know um, there were no youtubers that were household names. And it's very, very different now. So at the time I got into YouTube, I knew very little about it. I didn't know that people subscribed. I didn't know that people actually logged into YouTube. I'm like, why would you log into YouTube? Now you're going to get all sorts of emails and notifications and stuff. And so I was just making videos and I was surprised when people started commenting on it. And I was surprised when people started saying things like, when are you going to upload your next video? Oh, I just gave you a sub- uh, subscribe. Uh, You should have more subscribers. I was learning all this basically from my commenters. And as I started recognizing them coming back and as I had this little community of just a few hundred people, I felt a responsibility to make more content for them. And now with all the big numbers we hear with YouTubers, you would think a few hundred people is like not even a YouTube channel. You get like that many subscribers by accident. But a few hundred people, if you're in a room with a few hundred people and they wanted you to do something, you'd feel pressured to do it. That's a lot of people. (laughs) Yeah. That's the way I felt at the time. Yeah. Uh, probably more so even I'm used to it now. And so I felt a lot of pressure to do it then. And it was exciting. Mm
1: -hmm. Interesting. Was this was late two thousands, early 2010s or what was that? Yeah, this
0: was 2015. Oh wow. This was 2015 when I established the YouTube channel, February
1: 2015.
0: And after a couple of months I started an LLC and yep. all that because um wanted to write stuff off I was I was started to spend money on camera gear and everything and I don't know I don't know why else I started the LLC besides oh I know why affiliate links I never intended to make a living on YouTube I never intended on it being full time and at the time the partner program was really new and it was hard to get into you couldn't just monetize YouTube videos. So the only way to do it was affiliate links. And because I was kind of reviewing products and showing bike products, I thought, well, if I put a link in the description, I can get some uh, revenue from that. That could help justify me doing this. Um, Or I at least tell my wife that's why I'm spending all this time on it,
1: you know? Um, Can you describe some of those early, early videos? Like, What was it, do you think, about what you were putting out there at the beginning when you just had a few hundred subscribers uh, that engaged people that, even though you had a very small audience, it sounds like they were passionate fans pretty quickly, which isn't necessarily common, I don't think. There are a lot of people that try to start a YouTube channel, and we can kind of get into the conversation of why some creative things become successful and others don't. seems like a lot of people try to reverse engineer it. Um, but do you have any hunches about why what you were putting out there immediately hit, immediately landed for people? Sure. Absolutely. Um, it wasn't pretentious. So mm.
0: there there was, there was a mountain bike content on YouTube at the time, uh, But a lot of it was coming from an expert or it was coming from somebody that the audience couldn't really relate to. And we have this clear picture of what the average mountain biker is actually like now. But back then, we really didn't. Uh, It wasn't all out there on display like it is now. And, And it turned out that the average mountain biker would rather see just some, you know, jewish dude from new york with like gray beard hairs (laughs) explaining it than a superhero because they can relate to me more (laughs) and so um and so they thought that the my new york accent has diminished very uh slightly over the years little by little but at the time they like the they like the new york accent they like that i wasn't in really the best riding clothes they like that like I was really short and just, is almost like if this guy can do it, anybody can. Mm. Um, and I was talking about things that were actually relevant to them. So a lot of the other YouTube channels that did mountain biking were funded by something bigger because why else would you, there was no reason to do it. I, I wasn't making money at, at, the, at the time. Uh, so there's no reason to do it um, unless you had some sponsors or some funding behind you. And so... They were always trying to appear like experts and they were always talking like they were talking to other experts and using words that people wouldn't understand and throwing things out there like, like obviously you have this part, you know, um, yeah. just saying things that didn't connect with the audience. Uh, I even find myself doing that now. Like I'll, I'll have a whole section of a video talking about a bike travel bag and like 0005 percent of mountain bikers have a bike travel bag. Yeah, you know I have to remind myself of those things sometimes that I can become jaded by just being out there the way I am. But back in those days, that was the only everybody on YouTube was doing that, and I was the first person to provide something different and just not care what people thought about it. And just I was an actual normal mountain biker. There was there was that's the simplest way to put it. There was never an actual normal average mountain biker creating content for people um that was interesting
1: yeah yeah i mean to be totally honest it was digging through your youtube channel that helped me see that more clearly just in terms of not just the media landscape in mountain biking or or cycling in general. But the entire industry, like we have, and I don't know why it is, it's probably, you know, old European traditional influences, but the way that the media and um, the industry talks to cyclists is like everyone is in this top 1% of experience level, of passion, um, of just seriousness, and it just leaves this huge percentage of folks who don't want to go out and like glorify suffering every ride or wear this crazy <laughs> right. svelt racer kit like it's so uh elite and yes it, it's it's mind boggling to me that that's just the habit like once you see that, it's really, really striking um and your success is really the proof of that i mean your're your, your falling is enormous, and it's like, well, duh. Like if if you zoom out, uh, even interactions I have where people you know will will ask like, at what temperature do you put arm warmers on? And it's like whoa, <laughs> like okay, right? That, that that's that's really striking. That yeah, of course you like most people wouldn't know that. Like that's a very basic thing, but it's a basic thing for me because I've been doing it for fifteen years. Um, at what point did you did did you start to kind of grasp? the potential there? And did you get excited professionally or was it more like, whoa, there are a lot of people out there that, that need what I'm making? Well,
0: it was a couple years in when I started monetizing the content and I started transitioning to doing less web development and more YouTube. That was sort of the beginning of the end for my, my prior career. Yeah. I started to, you brought up a really important example about the arm warmers. Answering questions that people are too embarrassed to ask is huge. If you can do that, you have got a follower for life. Because they're like, ah, everybody else just assumes I know this. You're the first person to explain it to me. It's like, okay, I'm going to listen to you from now on. And it wasn't until a few years in in really helping beginners out that I started to realize that a lot of people that were watching didn't even mountain bike. And a huge amount of them. So these, these are just random people finding the videos entertaining. And I started to focus more on entertainment instead of talking directly to mountain bikers because A... That broadens the audience. And B, we've done that in every single other category except for mountain biking. So, for example, if you're watching an HGTV show about remodeling a house, could you imagine if they geared that towards home remodelers? What it would, you know, the things they'd be talking about and what, like, gauged nails and stuff you're using? Like, that's not entertaining to anybody but, like, five people. So, So I wanted to be the Bill Nye the science guy of mountain biking kind of, like where um, I'm making it accessible to everyone. And what I found is I was getting messages, hey, Seth, I'm getting my first mountain bike, thanks to you. Or, hey, what mountain bike do you think I should get? And so we were actually creating mountain bikers. Um, Not only creating mountain bikers, but also just making people view mountain biking in a more positive light and demystifying what it is. Some people didn't even know what it was. It's like, wait, Normal people go off of jumps. I thought only professionals go off of jumps, but no, everybody goes off of jumps. Like people didn't even know that. It's it was recently I explained what tire sealant was in a video. Like I did a I did a video mountain biking one hundred and one. Like the it wasn't that recent, but the questions you are too afraid to ask. And I noticed comments like uh, Eric Porter cased a rock in Sedona, and all this white tire sealant started squirting out of his tire, and. I saw a comment. It was like, Hey, are we not going to talk about the fact that there was milk squirting out of his tire? <laughs> I thought that was hilarious because hey, he does a mountain bike. He does not That's a weird thing, right? You fill a tired up with air and you put an inner tube in it. And so I made this video just answering all these questions that people would be too afraid to ask. Like, yeah, where do you ride a mountain bike? Like you go to a trailhead and there's a sign and that's where the trail starts. And like, these fire roads connect to different trails. A lot of trail systems are like that. Some of them are like this. When I say technical, I'm, I mean that it, there are a lot of rocks and there's a little bit of doing to get through it. And when we say flowy, yeah. we mean it's like this. There were all these things that um, even if nobody was asking the question, I knew that some of them were just kind of like going along. And no, nobody ever explicitly explained what those things were.
1: Yeah. Yeah and it's really when you zoom out even more it's kind of a shame that the 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 bike world so much of the bike world doesn't understand that because there's already such a high barrier of entry for people to get into the sport whether it's expense whether it's social things um just intimidation factor and the sure. fact that the it, the fact that the industry as a whole isn't more proactive about kind of welcoming people and collectively trying to remember what it was like when they got into bike riding and how challenging that was. You know, I think the industry as a whole would do really well to remember what it was like to get into bike riding. However, many years ago, each individual did that. Um, And one of the things that I really appreciate about your videos is just the, the tone that you bring to them. And that's obviously a fairly intangible thing. I think a lot of it, that's where a lot of just the talent comes in. Like you just have an innate ability to do what you're doing content wise. But are there any places outside the sport, any other creators, um, folks from other realms where you kind of took notes or drew a little bit of inspiration here or there to kind of guide how you present yourself? Because you have this amazing way. You kind of alluded to it earlier. You'll do how to's. Mm-hmm. But you're almost doing this thing where it's like um, you're you're showing rather than telling, and it's fun like you you uh you teach people while still almost like gamifying stuff in a way. Sure. Um, did you just sort of intuit your way there? How, how did all that come come about?
0: I don't know if my videos were always like that or that format took shape as I created more of them. But it seems like that's the only way to make a video. I just, mm-hmm. I don't know any other way. That's what I would want to watch. And I think like, I think a lot when I drive, like even if I'm driving for 12 hours, I, dr- I don't have the radio on. I don't listen to podcasts. Like um, sometimes I do, but for the most part, I'm just thinking. And I'm running through different things and explaining to them to. I'm explaining them to myself. And That's how I build understanding of certain things or grok certain things. I think about them, and I don't think I'm much different from everyone else. I think we all do that. I don't know know if it's normal to explain something to yourself over and over again in your head. Maybe I'm really strange in that regard, but I'm basically explaining it on the video like I had been rehearsing in my head over and over again. And I never had an outlet for that before I had YouTube you know, I had done that since for as long as I can remember. I never had Hmm. an outlet for it. And to be able to share it with other people was kind of cool. And I was really surprised to see that they enjoyed it. I thought I was going to put up these videos that might be useful to someone and somebody that was searching for something specific. It it might come up. I didn't know that it was going to have mass appeal. Um, And I think a lot of it, stemmed from the fact that I was unable to talk on camera. So I wrote these scripts. Mm. Um, So most of the beginning videos have a narration. And so I kind of explained it, wrote it out how I kind of had it in my head. And then I would go like you would on an important email. You read through it a few times and you keep refining it. And then I would voice it over. And it wasn't until I was on screen for three, four years continuously that I just picked up the ability to get in front of a camera and talk. That's if you've ever tried to do that, you know, it's hard. And, you know, ready, ready, set, be entertaining. You know, that's (laughs) that's the biggest skill that I picked up during this. I couldn't always do that. And so I think it started with it started with that um, that script writing and narrating, which was basically just mirroring what was in my head. And it evolved into what it is today, which is me getting in front of a camera.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, one of the really interesting things too, about kind of what you make is that I think secretly there are probably a lot of quote unquote experts who really get a lot or can get a lot out of your videos as well. Uh, for example, I really enjoyed watching your, your white line video from Sedona. <laughs> um, and in keeping with those who uh, might be beginners, <laughs> the white line, but sure. and honestly, what's funny is like, you could be a very advanced bike rider and not know what the white line is, but I, in the Intermountain West, you you get so used to like, oh, the white line. So the white line is this, uh, it's not really an official trail, but it's this line um, on this crazy slick rock section of uh, sort of cliff face in Sedona, and it's it has all kinds of bragging rights and really high profile because of how striking it is. And you did this awesome video with Eric Porter. Uh, Just kind of breaking it all down. Like, how dangerous is it actually? Um, It's a bucket list item for a significant number of advanced riders and probably, like, a a dream item for many riders who wouldn't consider themselves advanced. You go into, is it worth it? Uh, You know, how how did you successfully ride? All these different things. And you make it fun. Um, And yet, throughout it, there's uh, you get this really significant sense of you feel the obligation that you might be holding for future writers. Like sure. this video, <laughs> this video could very well decide whether someone goes and tries to ride the white line or not. And so you make it fun, you make it approachable. um, But you're still really on point with the messaging. Um And as I was watching it, I wondered, you know, is he reading a script right now? Or is this predominantly, you know, off the cuff? Uh, It sounds like that's evolved since then. But as you're narrating or as you're putting together these videos and actually figuring out the information that you want to convey, um, what's that process look like at this point? Does it start with a drive? And you're like, ah, you know, this, this is really bothering me about the way that the white line is is talked about to this point, and I want to address it this way. Is it a long process, or does it kind of hit you and you just sit down and you do it? Or does it totally depend?
0: It depends. When I went to Sedona that year, I did intend on possibly doing a video on the white line. And so I had done a little bit of research and prepared myself a little bit. But a lot of times when I go places, I don't know what the video is going to be about because mm. If I do, then I might miss the opportunity to make something better once I get there and see what's going on and have some experiences. Now, with the white line, I just remember the first time I saw it. I think the first time I saw it was on a Nate Hills video, which probably has millions and millions of views. And um, he was probably the first bigger YouTuber at the time to really show it. And he showed it well. You know, they wrote it really fast. They had drone shots and it was the first time a lot of people had really seen it. And I was like, wait, where's that? Is that a trail? Are you supposed to ride that? And I was, just, so I was kind of had only a few years prior asked those same questions. And then when Phil wrote it and Phil called me up and he, Phil Metz and he's saying, it's really, really scary. And I'm like, Phil thinks it's scary. I don't think people truly grasp how terrible this thing is. And um, that you're dealing with the wind and he's explained, he's like, yeah, you get to the end and there's this turn. I'm like, I guess I didn't really, I guess that didn't really look that steep on video. And so I'm thinking of all this stuff and I needed that to come through in my video. And so I started with how am I going to really explain this to somebody? How would I explain this to grandma? And that's what I try to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and one thing that continually reoccurs for me is that you just you just used uh, Nate Hill's video as kind of a a baseline the the first place you became familiar with this. And when you juxtapose Nate's video or videos with yours, the thing that's really and this is not a knock on Nate, like a, I'm buddies with Nate and this is the way that most and Nate's
0: the best at what he does.
1: He's incredible um and this is how most of us are but i'm using it to kind of frame how you're different um you somehow managed to just abandon ego like in that video you get to the turn and you take your foot off and you're like i don't think i want to do this today like this is freaking scary and rather than cutting out that entire part because you want everyone to think you're a badass mountain biker right and you just did it like every mountain biker on the i don't care if you're Semenuk or whoever, you get fucking scared sometimes while mountain biking. Oh, yeah. You totally <laughs> and do. And yeah. And and the fact that you are um uh not just willing, but like prioritize showing that process and connecting with all the viewers is is just amazing and it sounds basic, but based on what I can see, it really is just like letting go of your ego a little bit. Sure. being willing to be even though you're an incredible mountain biker obviously you have amazing skills highly experienced you want to document your own growth process and and let every all of your viewers know like yes i've been doing this a long time i'm a confident rider i also go through this phase that that everyone else does um from a personality standpoint like is that are you able to just kind of go through life that way or is that something sure you developed because you know it's beneficial um, for the, for the storytelling element.
0: I've heard a few people ask me about this and sometimes they frame it almost like it's, it's uh, courageous to put yourself out there and, and be vulnerable and everything. But I was never cool. I never will be like, you know, (laughs) I'm really, I'm like five foot four. I definitely don't look like an athlete. And And I don't, and I don't give a shit. And so, you know, I do what I do and and it's sort of, that's what embodies, that's the embodiment of being a nerd is choosing being practical over being cool, basically. And so um, nerds do what they like and they never think, okay, if I do it a little bit differently, I'll be cooler. That's never a thought that crosses a nerd's mind, right? So, my thought is this'll make the video better. This is good stuff. I'm looking through the footage. I'm just like, this is good stuff. This is gonna make a better video. If you edit it any other way, you're a bad editor. So mm-hmm. that was yeah. that was kind of my thinking. It's
1: disingenuous. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's and it's not as good a content. It's not as entertaining. You need for a good story, there needs to be what am I? I guess the climax of the story there has to be a beginning a middle and an end you know uh, and a conclusion and there has to be uh, there has to be a premise and there has to be things in the story that illustrate the premise and that was perfect yeah. for it it illustrated yeah. everything I said prior perfectly
1: yeah 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 so I'm kind of curious I don't know if this is getting too personal but uh this sort of dynamic for you um, where you clearly you are very comfortable with this uh, with yourself. Like you said, you don't really give a shit, um, but you're often around, you know, these quote unquote professional elite athletes who, um, you know, are riding rampage or, you know, just came out with the coolest shred it recently. You probably share some sponsors. Um, you know, you go to sea otter, you're mingling with the rest of the industry. What is that dynamic? Like, do you, Do you find yourself, like, easily integrating with some of these folks who, like, are... are, No,
0: no except for the nerdy ones, right? Skills with Phil is an unbelievable nerd, and so is Eric Porter, right? Like, the people that I mingle with are like me in a lot of ways. Uh, A lot of the other ones, I'm friendly with them, and... And I'm even good friends with some of them, but those aren't the people that I sort of gravitate to. Um, They're also a different age than me. I'm 37 (laughs) years old, and so a lot of like the top athletes are in their 20s or early 30s. They're also in a different place in their life than me. I'm just been married for almost 10 years now. I'm a dad. Um, Yeah, I just uh, I'm in a different. A different place. So if you notice the people that I normally mingle with, they, they tend to be like me. The other interesting thing is when I first started mingling with people in the industry, I was very intimidated. And I thought, these are, um, these, these, I now have access to these people, you know, wow, what would my Mm -hmm. subscribers think if I put one of them in the video and make the video more interesting? And then my subscribers didn't give a shit. They didn't want to see any of that. They just didn't care. And so what I realized is that um, they're actually here to see this idiot who has no professional experience in mountain biking tell them about stuff. That's what they want to see. And they're there for the answer. The other thing, one of the big reasons people watch my channel, I've realized this recently, is that it's funny. It's funny there's a lot of humor yeah. and, and I feel like in a lot of other channels when there's humor, it doesn't land right or it doesn't really connect with the audience um, or this, there's this sort of pretense of being cool also. Um, and so, you know, um, adding somebody in that's amazing doesn't really make the video better unless they bring more to the video. What I already did, which is, They have to have some humor. They have to not take themselves very seriously. They have to basically match the vibe of my videos. And that's why Eric is a perfect fit when he's in my videos. And that's why everybody loves when Phil stops by buying my videos. Everybody that is a regular in my videos um, is not pretentious. And they're probably a little bit nerdy, you know? So um, that that I really, really figured out through mingling with the bike industry that you know, okay, these are good people to know. I support them. I'm impressed with what they do. They do much respect, but for my content, this isn't a good fit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Has that had, have you, have you felt like that's bled over into your relationships with brands at all? Like as you're dealing with brand partners, whether uh, I, I don't know how you structure all that, whether it's, sure. you know, video based or personal, personally based, um, have you, as you sort of navigate that business side of things with the industry, have you felt any of that vibe kind of bleed over and find yourself having to like explain <laughs> why why you do things differently, or do the ones that just get it get it? And you, that's who you want. They're to rely the only on. ones I've worked with. Yeah, the exactly. only
0: ones I've worked with are the ones that get it. And any time I've sort of worked with a company that was too cool for school, it just doesn't work out. Yeah. Uh, currently, I have no sponsors. Not any sponsors whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I've got companies that I know I've contacts that I can get wheels and cranks and whatever, but I don't have any sponsors. And once things kind of go back to normal, I might seek some sponsors, but probably not in the bike industry. They're probably going to be totally outside the bike industry. It's going to be like, you know, just a I don't know if I'll do a VPN or something like, like everybody else does, but it'll be something outside the bike industry because um, it's just weird. You know, even the companies that get, even the companies that get what I'm doing, there's still, I've got to use their products and yeah. not use something else. Is it weird when I review something that sort of competes with it? Is that even if I'm being completely hundred percent honest there's still the assumption that it's poisoning my opinion or or what I'm saying. Um, And so on the business side of things, I've been coming up with different ways to make revenue um, besides going with sponsors.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's such a, an important topic because even in really standardized uh, media in, in all of the big outlets that we know and rely on, um, the ones that have comments below, you see it frequently, like people accuse the outlet of, you know, having some sort of, uh, professional partnership with what they're writing about. And sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's disclosed very, uh, clearly other times it's a little bit ambiguous, but without a doubt, the viewer gradually, it seems like is becoming more and more skeptical of the authenticity of, of what they're actually watching or reading. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, and so it it's. I'm sure you could cash in on a very nice paycheck if you, uh, you know, aligned with certain brands. But it, like you're saying, it would it would potentially taint the product and ultimately start to erode that trust that ultimately is like presumably the foundation of of what you do. Um, oh, for sure. So I mean, totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. Uh, so on that note, can you kind of describe for folks how the monetization of all this works. I think most people at this point will know that YouTube will pay creators based on how successful their videos are. Um, Sure. but you can, can you give just a little sort of like state of the union of the the ecosystem of, of how this works?
0: So you've got your, you've got your Google AdSense revenue, your YouTube partner program revenue that's off of the ads that show up before the video. Sometimes somebody watches the whole ad. Sometimes they watch part of it. Sometimes they click it. Either way, you get a little piece of that. Um, pre-roll ads, post-roll ads, midstream ads. Then you have the, the creator economy. The creator economy, that's how you make money off of your success. Selling merch, releasing some kind of a product, making appearances, things like that. Then you have uh, baked in ads, we call them Uh, a baked in ad is an ad that you can't press the skip button. And those are big money. Like I could be making two, three times what I'm making on YouTube. If I just put a baked in ad on every single video, um, it's tempting, but every time I do, I just hate it.
1: Yeah. I was about to say, so do you do that?
0: I've done it a few times and it was with companies that I liked and they were cool to work with and they were happy, but it was always like, we're making the video. We're going through our normal workflow and it's like, okay, now we gotta do this ad. Yeah. Okay, now I'm done with the video. Now I gotta send it to somebody for approval. Like I wanna post it right now. And it's just yeah. like it seems really trivial, uh, and and stupid, quite frankly, like as an adult that should be putting away for retirement and preparing for their future, <laughs> that I'm just like, I don't feel like it. But that's kind of how I feel, is like I just don't I just don't like it. I like Doing, I like um, running my own businesses and stuff. We do very well with merch. Um, I'm working on a few other products in the background. You might have seen the Burn Peak Ranger Station. It's a it's an Airbnb that I set up for mountain bikers. That's always booked solid. There are lots of little things that I do, but the easiest thing that I could do is just do an ad on every video. and I might eventually do some more of that if I can find some sponsors that I really like and that I can really have fun with and make it a fun ad. But uh, for now, I'm just in- enjoying not doing it. And as long as the, the views are up, I can make ends meet fairly well through just YouTube revenue.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I mean, just sticking to uh, Purity, certainly can go a long way, especially when the dollar signs getting waved around for other creators are hard to say no to it. It's certainly a differentiator for you. Um, all right. So we need to wrap up here in not too long, but, um, I'm curious about this rebrand. So for the longest time, uh, your channel was called Seth's bike hacks. Um, Mm -hmm. and you sort of went in, I, I don't, For me, not knowing any background about it, a little bit of an unexpected direction because you took your name out of it. Sure. Where did Berm Peak come from and uh, why? Like why rebrand something that was so successful, is so successful?
0: So I always hated the name Seth Spikax. I hated it from day one. And, well, not day one. I think I never knew it was going to become a successful YouTube channel, so I didn't care what the name was. So first, I just called the channel, like, the first three, four videos. I just called Bike Hacks because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to, like, hey, you can take a Leatherman, and they have these little bits. Now you can use hex ones, and now you can use it on your bike, and it's also got a knife in it, you know, like little hacks. And a lot of my successful videos were hacks, and so it was just called Bike Hacks. Tried to get that domain name, couldn't. Um So as I grew, I'm like, okay, I'm going to change the name to Seth's Bike Hacks. Now I can get the domain name. Now I can register the business. Now everything makes sense. So that name came about very early by accident without me really knowing it was going to be successful or anywhere near as successful as it was. And I even heard in passing, just talking to subscribers and stuff, they're like, yeah, when I first saw that Sets Bike Hacks name, I was like, what the hell is this? And then I started watching it and I liked it, but I almost didn't watch it or I didn't click the videos for the longest time because it's called Sets Bike Hacks. So fast forward, you know, years into running the channel, I moved to a much bigger house with a much bigger property with the garage where we are today. And I named it Berm Peak. You have to name everything um, because it's more because it's more fun um, and you can merchandise it. And, um, you know, I was selling a lot of merchandise and Berm Peak shirts would sell, I don't know, 20 to 1 from a Seth's Bike Hacks shirt. I guess people the, – the Seth's Bike Hacks logo didn't look cool. Nobody wants to walk around with a shirt that says Seth on it. And um, – Berm Peak was just this cool insider thing that people liked. And so I thought it's going to be, and I wasn't doing many bike hack videos anymore. I was like building features out here. And so the channel was really becoming more about Berm Peak and building and doing stuff here than it was about bike hacks. And so I didn't want to indicate that I was doing bike hacks and I didn't want to keep building a brand that was not effective as a brand. Right? It was an identifier. Now, in hindsight, I could have left it Set Bike Hacks and just kept having that Berm Peak subbrand. It could have been easy. It's like Sesame Street didn't have to change the name of the show to Elmo in the nineties. Right? They left it Sesame Street and they and Elmo's still popular. You know, and I think I didn't see that at the time, and it really was confusing, and it's still confusing. And I don't think the thing that really matters is putting out good content. So in the end, like it didn't really hurt me that bad. But ha- if I had it to do over, I probably would have just left it set to Bike Hacks because it'd be more consistent and just ran with the Berm Peak brand. But um, in changing it to Berm Peak, um, I think it did make it a little easier for newcomers to understand. I think it just, it made things a little less personal and it made me appear more like one of the big guys. And you have to start watching the videos to realize that I'm
1: one of the little guys. Interesting. Well, I'm very curious about whether there are still Seth Bike Hacks shirts available because now it's like a, it's like a, the, I think there are when you, when you were, when you were a fan of the cool, like punk band before they pivoted and like sold their first platinum label or something. Right. <laughs> so I, I want myself a Seth Pike Hacks shirt. Um, cool, man. That's great. That makes sense. Um, yeah, the the whole rebrand thing is is uh, is kind of terrifying. I would have to imagine. Um,
0: oh yeah, but I it, wouldn't it, recommend it.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it it totally makes sense. Um, there's so much more I want to talk about. I mean, I have follow up questions just about just about that rebrand, but um, we should probably wrap up here for now. I'd love to have you on again to roll up our sleeves and and dig a little bit deeper into what you're doing. But um, thank you for taking the time. Sure. And thanks for asking good questions. I'd love to come back. Good. Good deal. Uh, We'll keep up the good work. I would ask you to list the various places that people can follow you, but I'm sure it's uh, quite self-evident if if they're not already tuned in. Sure. Um, Is there anywhere uh, that isn't as obvious that you would direct them um, somewhere other than you, the YouTube or, or Instagram um, something you're excited about something you're, you're peripherally involved with that, that you want to drop in
0: so at the current moment no but if you come to Western North Carolina check out Berm Park it's a free public bike park that all my followers funded and, uh, and it's a cool place that's, that's the thing that I finished in the last year that I'm most proud of, and so that's where I would direct people.
1: Yeah, and that's something that Luzi actually mentioned. He was like, you got to talk about this bike park that he opened, and I can't believe that we're not going to talk about it this episode. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically, so we'll do it, do it sounds like, time. yeah, I mean, for those just to kind of wet people's whistle, you basically created a bike park for people that's free. Um, pretty incredible. Sure. But anyway.
0: Yeah, they're all over the place out West and they don't have them here. So I, I wanted to prove that it could be done. Lovely. All right, Seth. See ya.
1: Hello again, everyone. Thanks so much for listening today. Big thanks to Lifetime Grand Prix for supporting today's episode. If you missed it at the top of the show, they just dropped a new YouTube series called Call of a Lifetime and it is awesome. It's six episodes long. Each episode's about 30 minutes long. Uh, strong Drive to Survive vibes, which was certainly one of the goals. There's as much drama off the bike as on. It's pretty interesting. It's it's really exciting uh, as an athlete. This is the sort of content and media uh, that I think our sport could really use. You know, there's obviously lots of content that comes from on the bike in the midst of these races. Um, some of us do our best to describe what happened, uh, after the fact. Um, but this series really gives you some insight unlike, uh, has been available in the past. And, and, uh, I think you, if you're a fan of cycling, I think you'd really enjoy it. You can just go to lifetime grand prix on YouTube and binge all six episodes right now. Thank y'all so much for listening today. A big thank you to Lily McKelvin for editing and producing the show. As you all know, you can go to The Adventure Stash on Instagram now to check out some videos from today's episode as Seth and I talk about YouTube and um, state of the industry and audiences and all that sort of thing. Plenty of highlights on that Instagram channel. Um, Speaking of Lifetime Grand Prix, one more thing. Next week, we're going to have Shannon Vanderveer, the director of this series, on uh, to go even further inside Uh, the Grand Prix and all the drama and what it was like to capture it. He comes from a really interesting background, uh, not in cycling, but has begun creating stories about bike riding and racing specifically more and more. Recently, we first worked together during Standing Man, my White Rim FKT, way back in 2019. And after that project, I knew that he and his crew were folks that I wanted to work with many times in the future, and it's really awesome to see him continue to see them cold collaborative is the the production company continue to get opportunities uh, to tell awesome stories within cycling lots more to come from him uh next year and uh yeah tune back in this coming week to hear from him directly thank you all so much for listening and we'll catch you next week